Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we're back. Number 47 on AFI's top 100 list of films, 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire. A Streetcar Named Desire. Of course, adapted from the play by Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams. So again, we see how the list is putting forward films that are rooted in other media first. Yes, always. Ethan, I think we should just jump right into this one. I think we probably have a great deal to say, so maybe we should start with a plot synopsis. Oh, sure. A Streetcar Named Desire is the story of Blanche Dubois, a high school English teacher who leaves Mississippi under mysterious circumstances to go stay with her married younger sister in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Her sister, Stella, is married to Stanley Kowalski, a gruff and violent man, and the two live in a run-down tenement. Blanche reveals to her sister that she's had to take a leave of absence from her job due to nerves and that she's lost their family estate to creditors. Stella allows her sister to stay with them despite Stanley's mistrust of Blanche's story. Blanche clings to her old southern ways and her attempts at upper class sensibilities lead her to clash with Stanley's abrasiveness. Stanley forcibly inquires as to her situation and she reveals to him that she had a young young husband who died many years prior. Stanley, in turn, reveals that Stella is pregnant. Later, at a poker game Stanley hosts, Blanche meets his friend and co-worker, Mitch. The two hit it off, but Stanley interrupts the night with his anger and hits Stella. After Stella and Blanche retreat upstairs to the neighbor, Stanley screams for Stella to return to him, which she does. The next morning, Blanche attempts to turn Stella against Stanley, calling him an animal and subhuman. He overhears the conversation, but does not let on what he knows. Stella remains steadfast in her love for him. As time goes on, Mitch and Blanche continue to date while Stanley uh, begins to look into Blanche's past. Blanche reveals to Mitch that her husband killed himself due to her verbal attacks on his masculinity. Stanley discovers that Blanche was a mentally unstable person in her hometown and had many sexual encounters, including one with a 17-year-old student that led to her ouster from her job and from town. He shares this information with both Mitch and Stella, and Stella goes into labor. Stanley takes her to the hospital. Mitch visits Blanche, reveals his knowledge, and she exposes her true self to him. She is tired, run down, and survives by telling lies to herself and others. He rejects her, telling her she's too used up for him, and she screams until he leaves. Stanley returns after he learns Stella won't have the baby until the next morning, and fights with Blanche, who has dressed herself in her finest clothing and pretends to be courted by rich suitors. They struggle, and Stanley rapes her. Several weeks later, Stella has returned home with her son, and Blanche has had a complete mental breakdown. While a poker game ensues in the main room of the house, Stella prepares Blanche for her departure to a rest home or mental institution. She collapses when the doctor arrives, but they eventually walk her out. Stella recognizes the hurt her husband has done and retreats upstairs, vowing to leave him. Pretty dramatic. You could say melodramatic. We're definitely in that vein. Black and white, 1951, actors acting their asses off at every turn. Ethan, I think the best way to show our audience this is to turn right to our pivotal scene. Let's do it. Okay, so the scene I selected is that sentence you talked about in the plot synopsis about Stanley being subhuman, right? It's also where we get the title 
of the film or the play, right? That Stanley represents this streetcar named Desire. Yeah. So let's go ahead and give it a listen, and then we'll talk about it. We're talking about his desire, just brutal desire. The name of that rattletrap streetcar that bangs through the quarter, up one old narrow street and down another. Haven't you ever ridden on that streetcar? It brought me here. Where I'm not wanted, and where I'm ashamed to be. Then don't you think your superior attitude's a little out of place? A man like that. I told you I love it. I tremble for you. I just tremble. Hi, Stanley. Hi. Hey, I speak plainly. Oh, yes, do go ahead. As plainly as you want to. What if you'll forgive me? He's common. Suppose he is? Suppose? Surely you can't have forgotten that much of our upbringing, Stella, that you just suppose there's any part of a gentleman in his nature. Oh, you're hating me saying this, aren't you? Oh, I didn't say it all, Blanche. He's like an animal. Has an animal's habits. Has even something subhuman about him. Thousands of years have passed him right by, and there he is, Stanley Kowalski, survivor of the Stone Age, bearing the raw meat home from the kill in the jungle, and you, you here waiting for him. Maybe he'll strike you, or maybe grunt and kiss you. That's if kisses have been discovered yet, his poker night, you call it, this party of apes. Maybe we are a long way from being made in God's image. But Stella, my sister, there's been some progress since then. Such things as art, as poetry, as music. In some kinds of people, some tenderer feelings have had some little beginning that we have got to make grow and cling to and hold as our flag in this dark march toward whatever it is we're approaching. Don't, don't hang back with the brutes. Okay, so Blanche is really laying on thick here. Vivian Lee with such interesting vowel pronunciation for someone who's supposed to have come from Mississippi. I'm just going to tell you this, Matt. I don't care about anything except for having a young Marlon Brando beat the shit out of me and then carry me into his bedroom and make love to me. That's all I want out of life. Well, I'm afraid you've kind of missed the boat on that one. Look at what a beefcake he is, Matt. Look at it. I do have a note that says, like, yeah, I guess Marlon Brando is pretty beefy. Marlon Brando is a beefcake marlon brando like i said he could punch me in the face and then make sweet sweet love to me and i would let him in fact i encourage him to well that would be somewhat inappropriate for his character stanley uh, stanley is a monster <laughs> and you know sure. in this scene blanche isn't necessarily wrong about him this holdover no. from the stone age that thousands of years have gone by maybe he'll strike you maybe grunt and kiss you and she's like if kisses have been invented yet and then there's a the polka game. She talks in such a strange the polka game, yes. which you know, sort of jumping ahead here, but I think we definitely see this satirized a lot these days, right? We have this oh. like Vivian Lee satire voice, and we think of soap operas or melodramas for sure. But in this case, she's not wrong. Stella probably should leave Stanley. He doesn't seem like a very admirable person, although 
we really don't know that yet. That hasn't been cinched for us until later in the film. So we might still be on Brando's side. Yeah, Stanley Kowalski is an interesting character because he is set up in this film, at least at the beginning, as possibly the the protagonist, right? Or at least right. part of that. We do find out that Blanche is right. I mean, he is a monster. He's a bad person. But at first, he he is represented to us as someone who does look out for his wife, um, is concerned about, you know, being swindled because of his family. Yeah, so, and of course, this whole monologue that uh, Blanche gives, he hears. He hears the whole thing. Yeah, well, so you mentioned that he's looking out for his wife. I don't know. I think when he gets into Napoleonic code, we start saying, yeah, Brando's not a great character. He yeah. says very clearly, well, what is the wife? Is the husband? What is the husband? So he says vice versa. But right. that's not going to be the case. He wants Belle Reeve, the ancestral halls, which Blanche, when she shows up, is kind of making this comparison to with the tenement they live in now in the French Quarter in New Orleans. She talks about it. Only Edgar Allan Poe would be able to describe it. Right. Which I thought you would particularly like. But it definitely draws comparison to Belle Reeve, which translation of is Beautiful Dream. Right. So we've got this lost dream here. I don't know. So what I think is really interesting and valuable about this film is that when you start out, you dislike Blanche immediately. She oh, yeah. is just this harassing. She's not older, but she's definitely played as older in this film. And you just are like so commiserating for Stella and Stanley's caught in this also. But then slowly the tide shift. And by the end, you're just like, Stanley is a monster who should be put away for life. Stella, I interpret the ending as she is going to go back to him. Just like the midpoint, she slowly walks down those stairs back to him. Well, and the the play uh, is a little different. It has a, a different ending. And, and in the ending of the play... Uh, Stella does not leave. Uh, so if that tells you anything about uh, <laughs> the ending. Yeah, I think making that text more subtext in the film, I think is maybe a little more impactful. So I think I do enjoy that difference because she leaves and she's like, I'm never going back to him. But it's like, Stella, we both know what happened last time. And even right. though he raped your sister, you've known about it for all these weeks. And why would you leave just now? Just because you see your sister collapsing and being carted off by these rest home people like that is passing that is fleeting if you didn't leave him then you're not going to leave him yeah it it does seem very uh very clear that she's probably coming back which is terrible stanley's this monster and to an extent mitch is also not a great guy yeah i mean mitch also though isn't necessarily what i'd call it terrible person at least we don't get enough you know enough evidence of that in this however again i believe in the play uh when mitch shows up the, the, i think that uh his interaction with blanche is a little bit different where he rejects her in the film uh and says no you're used up and you're old or whatever uh, i believe in the uh play he attempts to rape her and she screams uh and that's why he runs well, I think that's still the implication here, right? Because yeah. he grabs her and kisses her, and you're like, oh, maybe Mitch isn't such a bad guy. And she says, oh, Mitch, marry me. And he says, marry you? You're not clean enough to take home to mother. 
Oh, and then he yeah. continues to try to force himself on her. Yeah, and so, so I guess she it says, is get away, I'll scream. Try to rape her. So I think we start to see the these animal, these subhumans, which is, you know, I think a really interesting term to think about because it seems like this is pervasive. And so if all of humanity, or at least all men, are like this, then while, you know, they're humans, they're just deplorable ones. Well, and I guess we don't ever get to see a... A really a male character in this film except for maybe the the boy who comes to collect the newspaper payment i think he's the only male character that we see that doesn't have serious problems and then i guess even then he does because he just like makes out with this random old lady stranger <laughs> and he does it because of like the darker lore of this older experienced woman and she's playing that up by calling the little lamb and how he looks like an Arabian prince. And right. so she's she's preying on his youth, and he is attracted to the fact that there is this unknown here. Yeah, I mean the thing about Tennessee Williams is that uh Tennessee William plays Tennessee Williams plays uh are not they the endings aren't aren't happy. I mean there's a lot of bad things that happen in these plays. Well, I mean his purpose for writing <laughs> these seems very much that the world is not a great place, and I think right. this might play into my thesis. So I'll go ahead and jump on it. In the fact that Blanche has been forced to live her life relying on men, when she loses Belle Reeve, that's because of men, right? She talks about at the very beginning, it was because of the debauches right. that the people, the men of Belle Reeve, took all these loans out. So the creditors eventually come. She's forced to go to. She calls it the tarantula arms. I was. Not very clear if that was she was being serious or she was making it metaphoric or if it actually right. was called the flamingo. But she does take all these suitors and is effectively doing this escort service almost for a while. And then she gets into the affair with the 17-year-old student of hers and gets kicked out. And then so she's been used up by these men, forced out by these men, abused by these men, and it makes her vulnerable and so one of her ways she tries to counteract that is to find people like Mitch and Stanley to some extent to stop the cycle. But guess what? It's endlessly repeating. It's vicious. And she's finally broken by Stanley's rape or by just the aggregation of all of her abuse from men. And that last doctor, when he comes in, you know, we get the famous line of always dependent upon the kindness of strangers. Right. It shows her vulnerability, and again, the fact that she's being led by another man, and it's a rest home, not like a psychiatric hospital. She's not going to be cured. She's not going to be helped by this. No. So I think she's being misled once again. And so, you know, the world is full of blanches. Well, and I think that the the real th the real refuge that Blanche has, the only refuge I think that she has, is is denial. Right? She, you know like you said functions essentially as an escort you know she's a sex worker uh that that lives in this hotel and can afford to live in the hotel by you know being supported by the strangers who come in and have sex with her um and then you know she comes to St stella and stanley uh and again is reliant on them and then as she leaves she's relying on that you know she's trying to be relying on mitch and the only way she can get through all of this is is to be in this deep state of denial to the point where, you know, we finally see her at the uh, right before Stanley comes and rapes her, that she's in 
this ridiculous outfit having a fantasy of being at a party you know she lives that's the her only way of dealing with the fact that every all men are uh able to do to her is uh abuse her basically um is to pretend as though they don't she lives in a fantasy land and and even to an extent stella does uh as well even though she argues in that scene that we listen to uh that she or maybe she doesn't say it in the chunk we listen to, but she does tell him shortly after, or tell uh, uh, Blanche shortly afterwards that she doesn't want to leave. She's not trying to get out of a situation. But of course, it's not good. It's objectively not a good situation. So to pretend as though living with Stanley Kowalski is thrilling or exciting because you don't know what he's going to do next is in and of itself a, a denial. Well, the writing's really on the wall when we hear about their wedding night, they come home and he comes back and smashes all the lights. And she's like, it thrilled me. And we see that demonstrated when the previous scene, she comes down the stairs slowly to make up with Stanley and presumably have really hot sex. And that is part of her, you know, personal, I guess, ideology of what a man is. He is this kind of a brute. He is chaotic. He is this force and some part of her enjoys that. But you're right. She is enjoying in the system of silence, too, because it's her and the neighbor at the end where Stella is admitting to the neighbor, I just couldn't believe what she said Stanley did. Right. So Blanche has told Stella, her sister, that she has been raped by her sister's husband. And the neighbor says, you can't believe that. We all have to just pretend it didn't happen. So they are all enjoying. It seems like the system of women are enjoined to this kind of silence as well, which you know, I think is very, very comparable to the Me Too movement and like systems of silence. Right. Well, and I mean, we can see, so we can, I think at the end of this, we can see this play as one uh, uh, of setting up the relations between men and women as one of abuse and one of denial. The only way to, to deal with this monstrous, uh, you know, toxic masculinity is to live in denial. The only way, right? The only way to, to hold on to something that's not, uh, vicious and awful i mean so the men really at the end of the day are the villains in this uh film there there really is no man in this film who is not guilty of 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 something at at some level right and some are worse than others certainly like stanley is clearly the the main villain and mitch does try to slug stanley at the end this is your fault but he's also implicit complicit in this as well but i would push back a little bit and say this silence, this delusion, is not an attempt to deal with it, right? It's complete abdication of dealing with it. This is a dissociative departure from life that Blanche is dealing with, that Stella's dealing with, that the neighbor's dealing with. That is a response to trauma, right? We can talk about yeah. trauma theory. And after Blanche's rape, she's still dissociated, but she's like that before. And so we can assume, yeah. or I think we have reason to infer and believe, that her past experiences have been traumatic as well. Right. Well, and also too, uh, I think it's also worth noting that the the other major change that I remember uh, from this play uh, to the film in, in the adaptation is that Blanche, uh, her husband, doesn't kill himself in the play because she like calls him out on the dance floor. She he kills himself because she catches him in a homosexual relationship with another with another man. Um, but but there's but so even if we ignore that uh, change in adaptation to focus just on what the film gives us, she 
you know, castigates her husband to the point that he kills himself because she says essentially that he's not man enough, like that he's uh, too sensitive and he's, you know, so he's everything that she doesn't get from every other man in this play, right? Even she's been sucked into this system where, you know, you have to be some sort of monster uh, at some level. And if you're not monstrous enough, then you're not a, a man and you might as well kill it, right? Like, it's all bad. There's no there's, there's no sort of good thing about this at all. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's important for our listeners to know, just in case they don't, Tennessee Williams was gay. And the fact this was converted into film in 1951, I can see why they cut that plot, even though I think that is so illustrative of the themes of this film, like you're pointing out. I think if they did that, then obviously they lose a lot of like maybe maybe they can't even do that. Right. I don't think it's a choice they get to make necessarily in 1951 about whether or not they could put that in. But Mm. I think if we do get that, it makes much more sense. I thought the weakest point of this film was that her husband killed himself. I didn't know why she was haranguing him in this case. I didn't know what the logical connection is there. But you're right. It's that they're all bought into this narrative of toxic masculinity. And that explains that perfectly, right? So I do think there is one detriment to the film there. Right. Well, and and it's, it's such a strange thing that Blanche both sets up a fantasy in which the men all treat her well but then when she's confronted with that reality in her poetry writing uh young husband she doesn't actually she doesn't want that for whatever reason right well, like, for whatever reason it's been she's been indoctrinated into society right, right? well right exactly and so it, it's such a contradiction that it that it is so tragic right that like you get what you want the, you get what it, what your what you have literally put yourself into this insane uh, fantasy of denial with. When you get it, you don't want it, right? Because that's not the, what. Yeah, the, this fucked up indoctrination of toxic masculinity continues to work itself into these things. It's it's fucked up. It's totally fucked up. And that response, I think, is human, right? I think Blanche is engaged in a very human thing, thinking you yeah. want something, you get it. Nope, turns out I didn't want that. That tragic rendition or display or performance of humanity right ethan i wanted to touch on one more theme before we move on to our three questions sure i think the film does a very good job thematizing blanche throughout and you know how big i am on you know cogent or constitutive themes that carry throughout the film and we have this in both the paper lampshade over the naked bulb as a metaphor for blanche herself Right. In the same ways that her rhinestone tiara is. Blanche, as she says, 50% of woman's charm is illusion. She herself is fragmented or dispersed. She's ghost-like. The fact that she's never seen in the day by Mitch, which I guess I didn't really notice so much because of the way the film is shot. But she's hiding behind all these smoke and mirrors or illusions because she's not confronting the the dark realities of the world her, that are, re- are manifest or made manifest in herself, right? Her condition, the way she's been treated. Yeah. And I thought they did a really good job of carrying that throughout. All the signposting is there at the beginning through the big reveals of the film that we can see where this is headed, right? The writing is on the wall if you are hip to it early on. Right. Definitely. So let's turn to our three questions now, Ethan. 
Let's do it, Matt. What do we owe this film? Oh, geez, this is kind of a hard question to ask because it's kind of a it it, it feels so ubiquitous. I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, I think that there is something about this, and maybe this is a Tennessee Williams overall sort of feel, but this sort of like desperate. It, it's melodramatic, but it's not melodramatic in the way we've dealt with other melodramas, right? It's, I mean, it is high drama in a way that I think borders on the melodramatic, and I think maybe we see this, you know. But I do think that, like, all that to say, I think the, when you pointed out earlier that Blanche Dubois becomes this character uh, that, you know, gets parodied and, uh, you know, rehashed over and over and over again. Um, I think we certainly owe that. And I, and I, I mean, maybe, so maybe it's the archetypal characters, right. Of Blanche and Stanley, you get a thuggish, uh, you know, brood of a man contrasted with this sort of, uh, hoity toity, you know, woman who wants to believe that she's, you know, high class, but has fallen, right. Like those tropes, I think continue constantly in media. Yeah. And actually I, I turned to an article, I actually like to quote from it. It's an MTV article called What's the Big Deal? A Streetcar Named Desire. And I think they actually did a good job. This writer, Eric D. Snyder, really encapsulates some of the things that we do owe to this film. On top of the ones I'll name, like this is Marlon Brando's breakout role. It's not his first right. role. Certainly his breakout. Vivian Lee has a tragic history with how she keeps descending until her death after this yeah. film. It took so much out of her and it... it psychologically hurt her yeah she has a a very uh unfortunate similar uh fall as to blanche right like which is really kind of sad (laughs) but let me read this paragraph he has here a streetcar named desired was a step forward in the evolution of american movies bringing audiences startling raw emotion that they'd seldom seen on the big screen before it also introduced them to the method stylings of Mar- Marlon Brando, who would soon become one of the most important and influential actors of all time. It's also, he goes on a little bit later talking about how boldly sexual the film is, even though it's all through implication. We're never given, thank God, a depiction of the rape of Blanche, mm-hmm. but we know, right? There's no question she's been raped. There's no question that he and Stella have sex based on their conditions the following morning, right? Mm-hmm. It's boldly sexual in 1951. And, of course, you couldn't even say sex during that time. But you also have things like they cut the plot line of Blanche's dead husband having gay sex with an older man. Right. So I do think we owe a great deal to this film because you do see a lot of stuff you mentioned as ubiquitous today. But I think a lot of this is flowing through or coming from the acting stylings here. The development of plot and the intensity certainly mm-hmm. so do we care about the film yeah i mean i think we do uh you know it it, it it and partly because it has become so culturally culturally ubiquitous uh we kind of have to and it you know it launches marlon brando i mean that i think a lot of things that you pointed out in that it, from that article um and just that we've talked about in the last question you know it if if anything it catapults marlon brando into the spotlight right which is in and of itself important so i don't know yeah we have to i think so i'm also wondering i don't recall this maybe you have this information that you can help me 
was Tennessee William popular as he was writing? He was, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I, from what I understand, I mean, Tennessee Williams' plays did well on, on Broadway and, and, you know, in the actual theater. So, you know, this adaptation uh, was because there was, I mean, the, the uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, I believe, in its original run, ran for something like 830 shows. So, mm-hmm. which is a which is a long run. And Vivian Lee was in that as part of her tragic downfall as that's taken so yes. much out of her. yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it just in the fact that, and this is probably Tennessee Williams' best work, um, or and and definitely his most well-known work. Yeah, we have to care about this. It's taught everywhere. It's read everywhere. It you know, it doesn't matter if you know nothing else about the play. You've heard somebody shout Stella over and over, and it's you know worth uh, knowing where that came from. Yeah, and I was going to say my point about Tennessee Williams and his popularity is that it wasn't like this then took people by surprise, but it still was successful because it's, I would say, a mostly faithful adaptation and being able to convert the intensity of Williams's plots and characters onto the screen. I think that is important in and of itself. Yeah. Okay, so does this film hold up? Uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, yeah, it really does. Uh, it's really, uh, you know, I was going to say it's pleasant to watch. It's not actually pleasant to watch, but it, but you you know what I mean? It's. I was certainly engaged as I watched this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what it is, right? Like, uh, it, it's, it's a film that it does not bore you. And it's not very long, or at least, it, I mean, well, it's two hours, but it doesn't feel like two hours. It feels much shorter. Right. I definitely felt like we moved quickly through the plot. I was engaged. Even films that I typically have a lot of fun with or enjoy watching, I'll pause a few times in my viewing. I don't recall pausing this at all as I watch this film. Yeah, it's it's easy to watch. It's like beautiful to watch. You know, the cinematography is good. and it's And it's because it's simple too, right? I mean, it's... A stage play that they've adapted so right do we know if they actually filmed this in new orleans because i was just there recently and i was like that certainly looks like the french quarter it looks a lot to me like the french quarter i mean if they did if they did a set it was a damn good set i if you if i had to guess i'd say they filmed at least you know some of those exterior shots where she walks through the french quarter i mean that that shit's got to be from new orleans i mean i you know yeah i'll also say we've talked about this before on the podcast black and white films seem to hold up better which you'd think hey that's kind of strange because they're anachronisms in a lot of ways today but i think we don't have to worry about colorized film which is often a bit jarring today but i think it just it just i don't know something about the aesthetic of it holds up really nice Mm -hmm. yeah well ethan that's our time that's our time i think i really did enjoy this film because maybe I'm more attracted to the morose, the macabre, the dark, the dismal. But <laughs> I thought this was very successful as a story, good adaptation, and so it's A-OK in my book. I was glad to have sat down and watched this. I enjoyed it very much. Well, Ethan, until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Whoever you are, I have always depended upon the kindness of spoilers. Spoilers.
There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.